0: Hello and welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. I am your host, Justin Chapman, the author of the book Saturnalia, Traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in Search of an African Utopia, a memoir about my travels across Africa. The book was published by Rare Bird Books, which is the broadcaster of this podcast. My guest today is Brett Shears, the founder of Vote Allies, a grassroots voting rights and civic engagement organization that connects disenfranchised people with voters who want to share their power at the ballot and build a more inclusive democracy. Brett, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate
0: it. Yeah. So uh, so tell me about uh, where this idea came from, how this project came about, the, and what it yeah, is, exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. So first and foremost, the project, as you said, it connects people who are legally disenfranchised is is usually who we focus on. So people are disenfranchised legally for many reasons. Uh, One of them is because they have a felony conviction and there are a patchwork of laws that determine whether or not you have the right to vote. And it, it varies by state. So there's one extreme end of the spectrum, which is Maine and Vermont, which never takes your right to vote away, meaning even while you're incarcerated, they will bring you a ballot and you are able to vote if you choose to do so. The opposite end of the spectrum is a state like Florida, where you basically have to get a full governor pardon to get your right to vote back. So for a felony at any level, you can never vote again in your life in Florida. The overwhelming odds say you won't be able to vote again. And there are over a million people in Florida who who are in that situation. And then there are states like California in between where you can vote if you have a felony, but you can't vote if you're currently serving your parole. So there are a lot of people with very severe sentences you know, for, for serious crimes like uh, murder, kidnapping, rape, and other things like that that put people on parole often for life, which means as long as the laws stay the way they are, they'll never be able to vote again. And this is a mm-hmm. you know a history of you know that we've had for some time, but it's kind of been amplified in the last hundred years and amplified even more, certainly in terms of debate in the last dozen or so years um but then there are there are other groups of people who can't vote the The most obvious example and the most abundant example is is young people. you have to be a certain age to vote, and for a lot of people that like I said, it, it, it's apparent. You know, you you turn 18 in some states, and in reality, you can actually vote if you're 16 in some jurisdictions. And sometimes, where I serve at the neighborhood council, you can vote even at a a lower level. But for federal elections, you know, we all know the age is 18. So those people are all technically legally disenfranchised. But then there's mm-hmm. another population that I've been focusing on, and it's been getting most of my attention, which is immigrants. We're I'm talking about people who are non-citizens, and that group. There's a lot of diversity in there. Of course, it's not ethnically diverse, but it's also, you know, how long have you been here and for what reasons are you here and what's your legal status? Are you here on a visa? Are you here undocumented? Are you a legal permanent resident? Meaning you just, you could easily become a citizen in theory, but you just haven't taken that step. So there's a lot of diversity there too. The original impetus for the project is those, there are groups of, or people within those groups, who really want to participate, who want to do good things. One of those things is voting, and I want to create a passage for them, some way for them to get involved. And uh, this project is one idea, and the vote is a very symbolic aspect. The actual very original idea was there was a woman who was in a public event. She was professing her frustration with a system uh, that prevented her from volunteering at her niece's school. Her school did not let people with felony, felony convictions volunteer. I don't know the nature of her crime. I don't know the exact policy that prohibits her from doing that. But at, le- at the very least, that was her perception. That was her complaint. And volunteering uh-huh. at a school is a, is a good thing. We want people to be able to do that, but we are explicitly prohibiting people from doing that. And voting is another right. thing that I've categorized as a good thing, and yet we're prohibiting people from doing that.
0: And uh, so have you been the only one fleshing this idea out and doing the coordinating, or do you have a team working on this? Uh, in, in terms of boat allies, there is
1: there's a small group of us, you know, really a handful or so, who have been doing outreach on the project. But I now have established within that group, and then, through our various connections, a pretty decent-sized network of people who not only know about the project, but who are out there evangelizing and and using this idea of ineligible voters as a real impetus for outreach, because often a lot of our outreach activities are organized around voting blocks people who are eligible to vote. So the problem you run into is you often encounter people who are not eligible to vote. And of course, in a state like Florida, that's going to be a huge problem. There are lots of people who can't vote, so they're going to feel completely disempowered and they're not gonna be, they're not gonna have the same impetus to get involved. This project gives them an impetus. It gives us as eligible voters an excuse to reach out to them, but also give them an excuse to participate.
0: So it, uh, the way it works is that they sign up on voteallies.org and then you pair someone who can't legally vote with someone who can legally vote. They discuss uh, politics uh, and, and civics amongst themselves. And then they make a decision, the person who can vote, to vote in place of the person who can't, right? Yeah, you
1: flip those. The person who legally can't vote is the one who is making the advisory decision, meaning they're going to say, I legally can't vote, but if I could, this is how I would vote, and this is how I think we should vote. And part of the connection that you're building between someone who is legally eligible to vote, like you or I, is we are trusting they are entrusting us with that responsibility of saying, yeah, I'm going to be your voice in this process. So yeah, you, you described it perfectly. You know, it's a part of a dialogue. There's, there's a lot of polarization right now and a project like this allows two diverse people. You're diverse in one very, you know, essential way is that one is legally allowed to vote and one is not, but then there are all kinds of subgroups in both of those different, you know, core, core, broader core groups
0: hmm And, and uh, what kind of research did you do around this? Did you look into the legality of it? Are there similar ideas out there? Uh,
1: the legality was the first thing that I really looked into is, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't think it's a legal gray area because it's been fleshed out by a lot of First Amendment cases before federal court system. And really, it's protected under the First Amendment because... What's essentially happening is you are discussing an electoral, you know, decision with someone openly, and you're taking their advice under consent. There's no coercion of any kind because that's where the legal uh, line is crossed. As, as soon right. as coercion is involved, in anyway, and that's under the current system. Absent, like if this project didn't exist, that would be the same concern. And the reason why those laws exist that prohibit coercion is because they, you know, originated under these uh, systems where bosses would tell their employees how to vote. They would look over their shoulder and they would say, this is how you should vote, and I'm going to coerce you into doing that. So we we now have protections against that. So that legality was, it's not, you know, it's never settled. It's always going to be open for debate. But there was a, a major case. Uh, between a website and the state of California, I, I forget it's something v. Bowen because Bowen, Bowen was the Secretary of State in California uh, in 2007-ish. I wanted to say that was settled. That was about vote swapping. There were there was a website that wanted to allow people who lived in swing states to vote confidently in third-party candidates like Ralph Nader. They really supported people like Ralph Nader, but they didn't want their vote, which was critical in a swing state, to work against the lesser of two evils, the candidate, the Democrat in this case, that they would have rather won than the Republican. And the reason why it's relevant to do that is because the third party candidates get federal funding if they get a certain percentage of the vote. So it's really critical. It's not just a symbolic thing. There are actual tangible reasons why you would want someone in California, which is who they were swapping their vote with. Someone in Ohio, for example, would swap a vote with someone in California. Say, hey, I know you live in California, but vote for Ralph Nader. Because if you don't, I'll vote for Ralph Nader. And I live in Ohio. So that would be problematic. So there's (laughs) an incentive to, to advise each other. And that's what was happening in the year 2000 in this you know, it became a federal case, and it was ultimately ruled in favor of the, the defendant, which was the the person who operated the website. Who said, "You know what? This is protected under the First Amendment. People should be able to swap their votes, advise each other however they want. Doesn't matter how they came to their decision about who to vote for. It's legally protected under the First Amendment." And I, I mm-hmm. feel very strongly that this project fits under that uh, same same reading of the uh, of the law.
0: Yeah. Uh, and uh, the first election where you tried this out that was the, the June seventh California primary,
1: right? That's exactly right. Yeah, that was the that was the pilot for this whole thing. I mean, there were elections, uh, local elections before then, where we could have tried it out. But one of the it's a it's at once a problem, but also a beautiful thing about this this process is that you can connect people from clear across the country because we all share at least one contest on our ballot in November and that's the vote for president. So the mm-hmm. the ballot looks exactly the same or at least very similar for almost every state as it does for someone in New York as it does for someone in California. And that's important because it shows us that we are connected by a lot of these issues, but it's also problematic in that if you are someone who is interested in local issues and you're in California and you're connected with someone in New York, You're not going to see any of the same things on the ballot. So it's a tension that we're dealing with right now. But one of the things that we ask for when you sign up is a zip code. And that zip code is used to show where you are geographically and which contests on your ballot are going to be most closely associated with what you would normally get. We're trying to replicate the process for the people who are disenfranchised. Because we know what your ballot's gonna look like if you're if you're eligible to vote. You get your ballot based on the exact address where you live. But when you're not eligible to vote, you don't have you're not in that system. So we don't really know exactly what your ballot's gonna look like. We could in theory, but for for reasons about being sensitive to to pop vulnerable populations like immigrants and people with felony convictions we don't ask for the uh, exact address. So we just want to match it as closely as we can without getting too invasive.
0: Right. Uh, So how many people participated this time? And uh, now you're gearing up for November 8th. How many people do you expect to participate in that one? Well, so there were a couple dozen people. So about a
1: a dozen partnerships that participated in the June 7th election. A lot of them were just people that I talked to physically on that day and we weren't just pulling in people off the street that day. I kind of wish we were, but we weren't, we were just <laughs> focusing on the few that we had. And then, uh, they were all, you know, they responded, they, they used social media. A lot of them said that it was an honor to, to share their vote and it was a really cool experience, but again, really small scale. Uh, at this time, you know, I expect there to be at least, 100 people participating, and that would be over 50 partnerships. And I think mm-hmm. there, as we get closer to November, somewhere in, uh, I want to say, possibly September, I think it's really going to ramp up. And at the rate we've been g- getting people to sign up, it should be well over 100 by November. That, the, wow. the, the one thing that we're doing differently this time is we're going to have a drop dead date to register, which I'm a little ambivalent about because I don't like excluding anybody, but you kind of need to have that if you want to create the partnerships and make them work because the way it works is there's always going to be an imbalance of people. There's going to be some eligible and then more ineligible or vice versa. So what we need to do is say, you know what, we're going to we're gonna halt the registration right now. We're just going to pair everyone so everyone can participate to the extent they, whatever extent they can. And,
0: and is that date uh, the uh, October 25th? yeah
1: exactly that's the date that i mean at at this point that that that's the working day and that's the one that's just more logical a couple of weeks before the election so uh yeah. you know I, I suspect that date will hold but there are there are reasons why it might be pushed back but also brought forward depending on how many people sign up um
0: so you recently uh you recently went on uh kpcc's air talk with larry mantle to talk about vote allies And uh, afterward, you posted online a list called five things I wish I had said on AirTalk. So I I just want to read these five things, and then we can talk about your experience on that show or the interview with The Guardian or the other media you've done. Um, Number one, there is mass confusion about who does and who does not have the right to vote. This is especially true for persons with felony convictions. This was evident in some of the remarks. We need to make sure people know their rights. Number two, this is a partnership. No one is forced to give their vote away or do something they ultimately don't want to do. The point is to learn from each other and get the perspective of disenfranchised people into the voting process. Number three, exposure to the voting process can serve as an incentive to naturalize for non-citizens. My stepmother has lived in this country for over 20 years and she's thinking about the value of voting for the first time because of this project. That makes me very proud. Number four, this project is entirely legal. Casting a ballot informed by the preferences of someone else like husbands consulting wives before women's suffrage has been happening since the founding of this country. The First Amendment protects our right to do what we'd like with our vote. Number five symbols matter that this project is largely symbolic is true. However, it also says something about how much we care for people who are disenfranchised and have no voice. Elections are ult- uh, unlikely to be won or lost because of this project, but lives can be changed. So, so what was your experience? What what uh, what was your experience uh, on air talk with uh, uh, different media you've done around this project? What what, is, what has been um, the response?
1: The the response to that specific uh, interview was great. I couldn't believe how positive, like overwhelmingly positive, people are. I mean, I, I know I sound incredulous, but when you read the comments on on any article about it, you get at least about sixty to eighty percent negative. And I'm not, and it's not negative just for the sake of being negative, meaning xenophobic or racist or anything like that. I mean, at least embedded in those are legitimate criticisms. And this, in this case, it was people mostly very curious about the project and people who were very positive. And I, I was also one of the points. The reason I made it is the last point about being symbolic was because that was the only criticism of the counterpoint, you know. So Larry Mantle always tries to bring on a point and counterpoint. So the dissenting Correct. voice in that, in that case, his one criticism was that it's purely symbolic and that it's feel good. And he's right that one of the appeals is that it feels good to share something of yours, right? We, we hear that about, you know, the psychological studies of philanthropy. It feels good to be charitable. And I would not argue with that at all. And then him labeling it as mostly symbolic to him is a you know a way to dismiss it. For me, it's a way to really enshrine the importance of the vote. That there's a lot of symbolic significance behind the vote. So that that was one particular point about this that that I found interesting about the the interview is that he didn't come in and say, oh well, immigrants should never deserve the right to vote. He didn't say people with felonies should never deserve the right to vote he just said that well you're not going to really change anything with this and then larry came back with a great point and said something effective well what about the process is there any value in in actually physically doing this and you know he didn't really the the guests didn't really have a good retort for that so i think larry's point stood and i think it was a
0: good one yeah so so have you gotten any any other pushback from this any other concerns from anyone else the biggest the the ones i take
1: most seriously because, um, you know, one of the other points was about the legal bit, um, and, and, and we talked about this already, and it's really important to drive that point home. Is it legal? Yes, it's absolutely legal. At the same time, the pushback that I take most seriously is any semblance of illegality and any uh, concern for the participants. That is the first and foremost concern for me is that someone might get in trouble for doing this, even if it's under false pretenses, meaning someone saying, hey, what you're doing is illegal, even though they're wrong, I don't want them to feel like they're getting in trouble. I I, I want to put as much cover out there as possible to say, hey, this is legal, don't even attempt to stifle this person who's just trying to exercise their First Amendment you know, rights. Um, and I definitely don't want them to get in kind of, you know, if they're perhaps trying to apply for citizenship or documentation, if they think that this might cause them trouble, I, I, don't, I don't want them involved either, to be honest. I, I, I want people right. to, to be confident in their ability to pursue their own dreams before putting anything like this project you know, ahead of that. It would, it would be a terrible mistake. And then a secondary, but also very important concern where I've been getting pushback is about the movement as a whole. So the movement of you know, criminal justice reform, the movement of immigration reform, People say that this might have the effect of alienating people who are undecided, and I take that concern very seriously. So when people present to me any pushback on that issue, what I try to do is say, well, you know, I believe in this project. I believe in what it's doing. Is there a way that I can incorporate your concerns and actually mitigate some of the potential problems? You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to alienate people further. I'm actually trying to get people to communicate and to understand the symbolic significance of voting and just the overall significance of of voting. Because we live in a country where tens, if not hundreds of millions of people take their right to vote for granted, and there are millions of people out there who cannot vote legally and would love to have that right. And we won't even let them participate, and that breaks my heart. It really does.
0: Yeah, on that point, it seems like... um... The the target audience, at least among the eligible voters, might be people who think their vote doesn't matter or they can't be bothered to go to the polls. Uh, So so, how do you uh, get them to get interested uh, so far to do it for someone else, even?
1: So one, this election is probably the perfect election to to start this project. It's not it's not a coincidence of timing, but it's also just very fortunate. You know, it's a chance encounter on my part or a chance opportunity, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: there, I, I, I have, I'll disclose right now that I supported Bernie Sanders before he endorsed Hillary Clinton. So I, 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 I was someone who believed in reaching for a candidate who has a lot of enthusiasm around them, someone who you can really believe in, someone who does not promote indifference, meaning someone people are passionate about. Uh, I'm like that in general. And what I find is that there are many other people who feel very similarly. They want a a candidate they can be passionate about. So, this is a narrow part of voting in elections, but it's a big part because it's the most prominent example. In the part by that, I mean voting for a specific candidate and in particular voting for the presidential election. But this election is unique in that both major candidates inspire a lot of indifference. Both sides are often voting against the other candidate meaning they could very easily meaning voters sit out of this election and say you know what i'm turned off by both of these candidates but there are millions of people like i said who can't vote who would feel very passionately about both both sides they would say hey i know you're you're kind of you know cynical about what's happening or you're lethargic and you don't feel like this is an election that drives your passion that's okay but there are lots of people who feel the exact opposite and immigration happens to be one issue this year where people feel like they're affected by the decisions of both candidates so they really want to get out there and say hey i know you're not going to vote and you've thought about it but i need you to know that my passion would drive me to vote if i were allowed i feel very strongly about this whatever indifference you have I want you to set that aside, and I want to convince you to vote this way or that way, whatever it is and those people, I think would be willing to participate because whatever indifference they might have had it's it's it can be set aside for someone for whom they can share you know and bring in their passion, bring in their perspective into the voting booth, because you know I mean if you're a white male you know person you may not feel as affected by some of the rhetoric of Trump or some of the rhetoric of Clinton. But, you know, if you're an undocumented, you know, teen who feels very threatened by some of the words and some of the language that they're hearing, they will feel very strongly about this. And I think at this point it's important to get that perspective into the process. And for millions of people, like I said, there is
0: no formal way for them to get in. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I love this idea and I, I totally get it. I think it's really important. Um, and at the same time, I have uh, a hard time throwing my name in to, to participate because my vote is so important to me. And, you know, what if the person I'm agreeing to vote on behalf of, you know, wants me to vote for Donald Trump? I couldn't do it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a huge problem that, that was, it was identified at the very beginning because there are two things in what you said. One is that the vote is sacred to you. And that to me means a lot. And for some people, I think they mean that you should, a person like that should never participate. But in a lot of ways, I think just the opposite. I think for a person who values the vote highly, their willingness to share it says a lot about them. That just like with anything that you value highly, your willingness to share it is an act of compassion, and it's an act of you know, solidarity. And people make big sacrifices all the time. Voting is just a unique way of approaching that same ethic. Um, on the other side, you're talking about the conflict that we might face with a differing perspective, right? So mm-hmm. there, are two, there are a couple ways to go about that. One, you can say, well, why does this person want to vote for Donald Trump? Like, what, what am I missing? And especially, let's just say hypothetically, they're a Latino, they're an undocumented Latino, and they want you to vote for Donald Trump. You would be perplexed. You would say, why? But in those conversations, maybe they will, if not convince you, at least persuade you to to understand their perspective that, well, I actually think he's going to do something that benefits me. But another way of thinking about it is, well, you know what? This person has a unique perspective, even though it goes against what I'm saying, because if we just take the opposite of this example, if you're a staunch Republican and you were going to vote for donald trump, you would it would kill you to know that someone wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton, but you talk to someone and they really convince you that their lives would be adversely affected by a vote for Donald Trump, then I can understand being persuaded. you know what I mean our ideology sometimes uh makes it difficult for us to understand that other side, but I hope yeah. that that's what the project does. And then the last thing I'll say about that is in the sign signup uh, mechanism that we have, we ask people explicitly where their political ideology lies and if they're registered for a party, because obviously that only affects people who are eligible to vote, which party that is, and we do attempt to match people up. So like I said in one of those points about it being symbolic and it's not going to swing elections, that's true even more so knowing that people are going to be matched up by their ideology so you know there are some positives and negatives to that but it addresses the core point that you're trying to make is that there is a serious conflict if someone asking you to vote against your conscience Um, the very last thing i'll say about that is the person who has the vote who is eligible to vote is ultimately going to make the decision so i can tell you right right now if David Duke of the KKK was running for Senate, you know, in his state and someone asked me to vote for him. I'm not sure there's anything they could do to convince me that that's right. So ultimately, I would say, you know what, I understand your perspective. At least I'm trying to understand your perspective, but I can't do that. This person, this person goes against everything I believe. And either you can find another partner or just know that I'm not going to vote this way. But that point, what makes that so interesting is that you could go in the voting booth and vote for whoever you want, and they'll never know. But it just shows you the symbolic significance of actually saying you will or won't vote for someone. Because the vote itself does not, it's not going to change anything, right? The vote itself is not going to be the deciding vote. It's often not statistically significant but just knowing that you cast it for someone who you so dislike or you so disagree with it says a lot about us and that's another huge thing i want people to understand about voting cuz you know me from my from my previous lives before this project is that voting has always been a huge you know part of how i think civic engagement is a huge part of how i think and i want to know what motivates people and what i'm learning a lot from this project is the pushback and the underlying or implicit acknowledgement of the symbolic significance of voting, because ultimately you can just do whatever you want. But the fact that there is so much pushback against this, like I said, implicitly acknowledges that, well, clearly, whatever you do, even though it's within your the own private, you know, voting booth, it's still incredibly important, even if no one
0: ever sees it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really powerful idea and a really powerful project. Um, To learn more about Vote Allies or to sign up to participate in the the November election, go to VoteAllies.org. The deadline to register is Tuesday, October 25th. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Justin. I really appreciate you doing this. We just heard from Brett Shears, founder of Vote Allies. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Well Read. I'm your host, Justin Chapman, author of the travel memoir, Saturnalia, Traveling Town to Kampala in Search of an African Utopia. On the next episode, I'll speak with New York Times bestselling author Sidney Kirkpatrick about writing, reading, literature, working with Hollywood, and more. Join us next time on Well Read with Justin Chapman. A life well read is a life well spent, so pick up a damn book already. See you next time.